0: the reading this evening is taken from 1 peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 10 uh, page 1218 uh, in the church bible as you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you Simon, good evening everyone. Good evening. Thank you.
1: You are awake. That's always a good start, I think, to these sorts of things. Uh, as we've said, my name's Adam. I'm one of the other clergy here at St. Paul's. You are very welcome with us. We are thinking uh, this, mo- this evening, what time of day is it? had a nap again this afternoon, you can tell, um, this evening about this passage and being living stones a little. And um, I am of an apology that I have failed to provide you with three points. I have four points, uh, but they do all begin with the same letter. So it's all okay. Uh, those four letters, words are secure, special, strange, and scrapped. And when I told the senior team this on Tuesday, Jan, our senior minister, said those four words could describe me, uh, which was a little bit harsh, I think, particularly the um, special one but, and strange. But there we are. Never mind. Let's pray together before we think about these things. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word says that it dwells within us. Would you help this word to dwell deeply within us this evening? Would you help us to know something of what it is to be, living stones, and to point us towards your living stone, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be thinking first and foremost about this word secure. And our first couple of verses that Simon's just read to us, as you you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It says we are like living stones and that Jesus is living stone here. If you think about it, that phrase living stone is a bit of a um, a contradiction, isn't it? It's a bit like a numb sensation. You can't have a numb sensation. Uh, you might uh, Another contradiction might be a concise preacher. Uh, we'll find out whether that's true this evening or not. But living stone might be a contradiction. And I was just having a think uh, to myself about how I want to illustrate this first uh, idea of us being living stones and pointing to the living stone Christ. Uh, and I couldn't think of a good illustration and then remembered that Jesus gave us a really good illustration in Matthew gospel. Uh, This is the parable of the wise and foolish builder. You'll probably remember uh, the wise builder builds his house on the rock, the foolish builder builds his house on the sand. This actually genuinely happened in my life. When I was 16, we moved to this house uh, in the Lake District. The Lake District, in case you're not aware, is where God spent the seventh day. Um, In case uh, you're not sure, that's true. I have that on good authority. Um, And this house we bought, uh, well, my mum bought when I was 16. We moved to the Lake District and it needed an awful lot of work doing to it. Electrics doing, plumbing doing. The builders came in a couple of days after we bought it and ripped up all the floorboards, only to find there was just literally soil under the floorboards. The house had no been built without any real foundations at all. Uh, it was slightly terrifying, as you can imagine. The house next door, this is the house next door, very similar, had firm foundations, completely solid. Our house, not so much. Uh, And so we were able to put some underpinning in. We did, in fact, lose the side wall, the one on the right-hand side there. I came home from college one day, and the whole wall was in the front garden. It had come down because of no foundations. We'd got a a foolish builder initially to build this house, whoever it was, some years ago. The point Jesus is making in that parable, the point that Peter is reiterating here, is that you look at those two houses, and you might not be able to spot much of a difference. They've actually got slightly different roofs, but that's a different story it doesn't matter, Um, but they're actually inside the exactly the same house um, and they're very, very similar indeed. To the outside world, you wouldn't notice a difference between these two houses unless perhaps a storm came uh, of severe force, maybe even one like today, that would move something and then cause that house built on the sand to fall down. Let's just think about this in terms of our own lives for a minute. What are we putting our hope and our trust in? Is it secure, I wonder? I love uh, being ordained, I love being a vicar. It's uh, something I've felt called to do for a very, very long time. I've wanted to do it for a very long time. But it's not the thing that I put my hope and my trust in. If I woke up tomorrow and God said, Adam, I want you to go and do something else some weeks, that would be quite nice, actually. Um, But particularly, it wouldn't be such a big deal. It isn't the thing that uh, that I place my hope and trust in. My hope and trust is in the living stone. We'll know what we're putting our trust in when those things are being threatened, perhaps. When they're at risk suddenly our world will feel like it's falling apart. How much trust and hope are we putting in our results of our exams, be they GCSE, be they A-level, be they uh, degree exams? What about our job? How much trust do we put in that? If that were put at risk tomorrow, how would we feel? Maybe our finances, do we put a lot of trust in the fact that we are well off? It's never been a problem for me, fortunately. What about relationships? Do we put so much trust and hope in those things, things that may well not be there tomorrow? Or do we, as Peter says, put our trust in the living stone, Jesus Christ, our Lord, a trust that is always secure? Special, then, verse 9 of our reading said, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, I heard it said a little while ago that all clergy in the Church of England have got one sermon, and basically they preach it every single time they preach just with a different passage and shoehorn that sermon in. If I have one sermon, it's on identity, um, and so I'm going to shoehorn my sermon into this for a moment. If you've been here for any length of time, you'll have heard me talk about identity a lot. It's something that I feel really particularly passionate about. If you've not listened to literally any of the last sermons I've done in the last three years, you'll hear me talk about it some more. I just want to think about our identity in terms of these words that Peter uses here, particularly this word, priesthood. Now, we'll have heard here before that in the Old Testament, the priests were the ones that ministered in the temple. Uh, And uh, we'll have also heard, perhaps, that the high priest was the one that was called to minister to what's called the Holy of Holies, the place in the middle of the temple where God resided, in the Old Testament it tells us that this high priest wore bells around their tunics and the, and the story goes that he also had a rope tied around his leg so if he died in the Holy of Holies he could be yanked out uh, and somebody wouldn't have to go in to, to get him. But Peter says here that we are a royal priesthood. And he's not just talking about those of us who are ordained. All of us have a new identity. We are all, as it says, God's special possession. That holy of holies that the priests used to minister to in the Old Testament, now, Paul says several times, 150 times, resides in us. God resides in us. Now, the priests in the Old Testament had a role to do in that temple, They had to minister to the Holy of Holies. They had to bring the prayers and the petitions of the people to God. They were to enter the courts with thanksgivings, it says, a number of times. They were to give offerings to the Lord. If that Holy of Holies now lives in us, if we are God's special possession, then we, as priests, have a duty to minister to that, to bring God's, uh, the people's requests to the Lord, to enter his courts with thanksgiving, to give the Lord a pleasing and special offering. Do we know that we are God's special possession this evening? Do we know that we know that we know? That God lives in us, as I say over 150 times, Paul says that in the letters. Strange then, verse 10 and on to the rest of the passage which we'll look at in coming weeks. Verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think this possibly echoes the words of Jesus in John's gospel where it says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. We're called to be strange. We're called to be distinct. Some of you are doing that strange thing really well. Um, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> We're called to be distinct. There, is, there are lots of fights going on at the moment over who sets the culture in this world. That's been true for generations, but it's maybe particularly true at the moment. Regardless of whether that's issues to do with sexuality or abortion, whether it's to do with finances, whether that's global or how we deal with our own personal finances, whether it's social care or homelessness, whether it's immigration or the environment. We're called to not be distinguished by what the world says, but by by what God says. I wonder if any of you remember Justin Welby about eight years ago, uh, went to war almost against Wonga and other payday loan uh, companies and the way that they operate and work within the industry at the time was really unfair, particularly preying on those who were the most vulnerable. Unfortunately, um, Justin Welby didn't check, and the Church of England, in fact, invested in Wonga at the time, so he had to very quickly remove that investment as he was fighting against the injustice that they had. But the the message that he had was right. Culture at the time was saying you can have whatever you want. It really doesn't matter if you can't afford it. Have this debt. Have this debt. Have this debt. And And Justin Welby and the church said no. God says that he's made us to be good stewards of the things that he has given us. I find it really interesting that Richard Dawkins, someone that has been very anti-Christian for most of his life, said recently that a world without God leads to moral decline. He fears that the removal of religion will be bad for society as it gives people a license, in his words, to do really bad things. Isn't that interesting? There is a battle going on for who sets the culture in this world. And we have a choice as part of God's kingdom. We can either sit back, we can not put our heads above the parapet, and we can allow the culture to be formed by the world, or we can take the lead. We can speak out, we can set the culture and show the world that there is another way. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But before then, let's just think about this word, scrapped, for a moment. Again, from our passage. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. In our reading, we had a few quotes, both from Isaiah and also here uh, from Psalm 118. And these, these verse, this verse in Psalm 118 is used a few times in the New Testament. Peter uses it again in Acts 4, and there he says that Jesus is the stone which has been rejected and that salvation is found in no one else. Jesus quotes it in the parable of the tenants. You might remember that. It's uh, in Matthew and Luke's gospel. You remember that uh, a, a landowner sends some servants to go and collect the rent. Uh, and the tenants kill the servants and so he sends some more and they kill them and so he thinks well I'll send my son they'll respect him and they kill him uh, as well. However you look at the statistics as they come out the number of people who trust in God who call themselves Christians in, in the west is in decline. This week, there's been a report just released that said in 2018, the attendance of those aged particularly 0 to 16 in Church of England schools, in churches, sorry, has dropped below 100,000 for the first time ever. The number of adults attending Church in Church of England churches in the last five years has dropped by 12%, and it's more than 20% for those aged 0 to 16 and it may be that you're here this evening, and you know that you're one of those people who have, as this passage says, rejected that corner stone, thrown it away. If that's the case, please don't leave here without talking to someone. We'd love to pray for you. But what about the rest of us? I wonder if anyone here has ever read this book. Uh, I think we've got a picture of it, possibly. There is. It's called The Tipping Point uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. It's not a Christian book. It's not an anti-Christian book. It's just not uh, a particularly Christian-focused book. Um, At the start of it, Malcolm talks about something called the bystander effect. I don't know if there's any psychologists in the room or sociologists in the room that know anything about the bystander effect. The bystander effect, and forgive me, I've actually lent my copy to someone, so I haven't got the exact figures, but bear with me. The bystander effect says that if one person witnesses a crime then there is something like a 95% chance that they will intervene in some way or another. So they'll either try and help or they'll phone the police. By the time it gets to five people witnessing a crime, that figure drops to 50%. That's called the bystander effect. The more people who witness something, the less likely they are to intervene. Now, in the tipping point in this book, Gladwell talks about in times in history where someone has done something, sometimes something not overly remarkable in the grand scheme of things, but that has gone against the flow of the prevailing culture and changed the course of history. He references particularly Rosa Parks, who many of you may remember got so fed up with the way that black people were being treated in America that she decided she wasn't gonna move to the back of the bus, which culture told her she should do anymore. And this small action sparked something of the American civil rights movement. I suspect if he were writing today, he might talk about uh, Greta Thunberg in terms of the work that she's doing in, in, in helping us to realize the environmental crisis that we have on our hands at the moment. There are a number of things that uh, both Rosa Rosa Parks and Greta Thunberg have have in common, I'm sure. I've just thought of three this evening. First and foremost, they have a deep passion for something that is wrong, that there is an injustice in the world that they need to fight against. Secondly, neither of them, truthfully, are people who you would normally describe as world leaders. Neither of them are people who are in positions of world leadership, by which that's what I mean. They're not presidents, they're not prime ministers, they're not queens or kings, they're not in world leadership. They are just normal people. I think Greta's about 17, I think, um, at school still. The third thing, which I think is crucial to what happened in both of those, and this is really transformational. So you might want to write this down. If you've gone to sleep, wake up for a minute. Because I promise you, the third thing that they have in common is really transformational for all of us. It's something we can do. The fact is, they did something. That's all it is. They literally did something. In Rosa Parks' case, she refused to move from the front of the bus. In Greta's case, she's tried really hard to speak wherever she can about her passion. It's easy for us to look at those statistics, to think of the fact that less than 100,000 people between 0 and 16 now go to church school, Church of England churches, and think, oh my word, that's awful. Someone should do something about that. Yes, someone should do something about that. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? That leads me to my last S. I lied, there are five um, this evening, but it's okay. It's a question. So what? What are you going to do? There are four things I've wanted us to think about uh, this evening. Do we know that our future is secure? Do we place our trust and our hope in God? Or are we placing our trust and hope in something else, something that's not secure, something that could easily pass away? Do we know that we know that we know that we are special, that God, we are God's special possession Do we know that that holy of holies lives and resides in us? Do we know a calling to be strange in this world, perhaps? Do we live out that calling or do we try really hard to fit in with the world, being of the world as well as in the world? And how do we feel about this idea of having scrapped the cornerstone, the most precious stone? The cornerstone is the, in case you aren't aware, is the stone in the corner of the building, the one on which all of the weight rests. Some debate about whether it's the cornerstone mentioned here or the capstone, the one at the top of an archway. Either way, it's the foundational stone, the one that is of most importance, the one that much of this world has already thrown away. What are you going to do this evening in response, I wonder? Will you stand with me? Perhaps the band will come back. And I'll pray for us.